0: Well, obviously. These are big questions. (laughs) I thought you were just going to stop there.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, that's quite obvious. (laughs) Duh. Oh, sir.
2: Guess, Guess who's back.
0: back? Welcome to Season 3 of Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. We're back from summer vacation. We're still kicking into gear for this year's episodes, but some of us junior members decided to get together to give you a very off-the-cuff introduction to the themes we'll be discussing this semester. I'm Danielle Yet, and my faithful co-host Mark Standish and I are back together
1: Back here again.
0: (laughs) Returning to Critical Faith with us today are Hector Acero-Ferrer. Hello. And Grace Carhart. Hi.
1: So, this semester we're taking a deep dive into the wonderful themes of evil, resistance, and judgment, which not incidentally will be the themes for the undergrad workshop in May, along with a course that follows after that, which Ron will head up um, and I am excited about. So um, today we're just gonna say what we think, whatever comes to mind. We don't really have anything prepared. So hopefully that makes it more entertaining or at least more accessible. So, Hector, what do you think about evil, resistance, <laughs> and judgment?
3: It is just from the practical side of things, like working with, with a lot of um, kind of activists and kind of frontline, like community advocates, um, you get the sense that they intuitively are there than than they see a world that is kind of dripping with blood and um there is there is nothing they can do to really switch what's happened so far but mm-hmm. to to kind of untangle that yeah. the, the evil that has been woven into the complexity of the world that we live in um and just following kind of their their wisdom, you you find examples of people who um, are the most effective at, at really resisting evil in their context in their communities by isolating their action from everything else that is happening in the world and seeing if kind of there can be a small lab for the kind of flourishing of of goodness that could also follow that pattern. That if you in- insert go- goodness into that community, will that also find that a way of inserting itself into the complexity of their community and and kind of germinate or like be fruitful um, in that context and see if that can go beyond. So yeah. people that work at a larger scale tend to fall into that trap easily people that work in in their communities seeing their communities as the is the horizon of 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 action tend to be less cynical about that Mm. maybe that's the way
0: yeah so the smaller scale it's not smaller scale is the right way of putting it but when you're dealing with like a concrete a more concrete framework like it's easier to see what you can do to like address certain things rather than dealing with it on this like abstract cosmic level yeah.
3: yeah but but the flip of that is then they um the the person that is the kind of the ultimate advocate for that community will always be immersed in that despair mm-hmm. um they create a lot of hope for the community and they are able to kind of break the community from that like horizon of guilt, but they themselves are in an in between state that makes them be in that kind of like like you, you hear that in in writings like from someone like Mother Teresa, who is always in that dark yeah. night of the soul moment, even though she's bringing so much hope for the communities she works with.
1: Another <laughs> flip side um, is that uh, when someone's immersed in one in one community and is working for advocacy out of that community, um, it's hard to see how advocating for that community. Impacts other communities, mm-hmm. um, and so there isn't there is an advantage to looking at, um, with a broader lens because you um, you can s- you can see more easily the ways in which other communities have similar um, aspirations, and that that sometimes those things are in conflict at the same time, you know.
2: I think that the Christian tradition actually has a lot to offer in this sort of quandary of collective guilt, because obviously one of the the greatest mysteries of Christian belief is this idea of original sin. So this idea of guilt without blame, or blame without guilt, somehow we're entangled in this mess of being responsible for something that we're actually not responsible for. And actually, my area of research right now is a lot of um, early church father and medieval theology, so that's what you're going to hear about. But I think it's really interesting that at least up until the Reformation, and definitely more so in some traditions rather than others, there is a lot less concern about the will and about responsibility. So sin, as sort of a way of talking about evil, as it applies to the human experience, has much less to do with my problem or your problem, or I threw a rock at my brother today. You know, my responsibility in this fact is not as important as the way that we respond virtuously. So, the problem is not the problem. The response is the problem. And I think that if you, if you get into some of Paul Ricoeur's thought, you end up in that same place where he's saying, "Yeah, evil is this huge mystery, and if you think about it too much, it will crush you." And that still doesn't exempt you from having to respond to evil. And what does that mean? I I think it means a lot of soul care. So perhaps. Christian duty um a lot of it comes down to helping people feel nurtured and and honorable even in this sort of quagmire of guilt that we're facing especially in our cultural moment of climate change and deep anxiety about globalization and um automation so, what does it mean to care for people in that sense while we are also caring for ourselves? That is maybe a deep, a deep question. Mm-hmm.
3: Just to uh, piggyback on on, on that, uh, just thinking a, a bit more about about Ricor and, and how he might be able to to help with these questions. Um, I would say that in in, in in what I've read from him the the opposition wouldn't be between evil and goodness or good, but it would be between evil and reconciliation and I like how grace how you presented it uh, evil is something that somehow we can articulate, but if we think about it too much uh we would just get stuck there because there is something that is still mysterious about it but I Feel that recourse response would be that reconciliation follows the same pattern. Uh, it's something we can think about and articulate. And but it's not. There is there is a part to it that is unexplainable. It's it's a mystery. We are kind of gifted with it. We are able to gift it to others. And um, it does follow some patterns. But at the same time, sometimes we are just in a situation where we can't do anything else but reconcile with the other person. And that is what will heal that moment of evil. So there is, that it will be a balance be that but record is a person that tends to do bad, like put you in the middle of a tension that is non-resolvable, but created somehow. So maybe <laughs> that's as far as we can get with him.
2: We do have this beautiful ability to, Kind of tap into this idea of solidarity, I think, and less less recur, maybe, but um definitely uh I think Christian philosophy has done a lot in the sense of um, we are able to have solidarity with each other in this moment of confronting evil because our faith suggests that Jesus Christ also faced evil, and that to me, is very comforting um, because it sort of sounds heretical maybe, but if, if Christ was fully human, then he too must have stared into the face of evil wondering how this ever came to be or how this is happening still. Because I think that's a fundamental part of being human is that one day you wake up asking that question of the world, Um, and you continue to ask that question because it doesn't make sense. But because it doesn't make sense to any of us, we are in solidarity over that. And we are collectively guilty, but we are also collectively facing these challenges. It's not a burden you ever have to bear on your own or even within your own community. It's something that we together as a whole community of, you know, humankind, that we can face together.
0: So there's a flip side that comes to mind for me, where an equal threat seems to me like when people are too ready to say, "Oh, this is evil," versus you know, not being willing to say like something is evil at all.
1: I mean, I I think like <laughs> um, I'm going to take us in another direction. Go for it. Well, it's from your direction, <laughs> but. My a detour opinion. through this past uh ids that we were in mm. um is it, part of assigning evil to certain things very easily um is trying to have uh, a picture of the world wh- that is very ordered um so you can when you have an ordered word world and you can have surety that uh you have an enemy that is like, yeah, you are in the righteous position and the, and the enemy is in the unrighteous position. Um, and that bringing reconciliation or bringing justice is by, uh, defeating that enemy. Like that is sometimes just a way of, um, uh, of imposing a framework onto reality that actually is, uh, reality is way too complex for that framework. And it, and it causes us to, um, really, uh, when we oversimplify other people, that's a type of violence. Um, and it causes us to do actual violence that follows that oversimplification. Um, that I think is kind of maybe what what you're getting at.
0: Yeah. Yes. Thank you for clarifying my thought <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah. It seems to me that there are two threats, for lack of a better word. Uh, and it, it seems like many people might think, oh, part of the problem of today's world is people aren't willing to stick with the language of the themes that we're going for, aren't willing to make a judgment, mm-hmm. like they aren't willing to come mm-hmm. down and say, you know, good is good, evil is evil. Like that's kind of how they would frame the problem of the world today, and like to a degree that leads to many problems, and that is, in, in, there's an there are many instances of that where mm-hmm. you know people do need to kind of be willing to come down on certain issues or whatever. But yes, the flip side of that to me seems like. This over willingness to say, "You are evil," and in that in or that is evil, and in that instance, it seems like s- the judgment is final. Like, you know, you're just you're gone. You're lost. This instance or the situation is lost, and it is a way of like shutting down, like the possibility of reconciliation. Like you've been saying, Hector, and. So I guess I I guess the issue that comes to mind is like the finality of evil and like the presumption that like, once you pass a judgment that something is, you know, evil, that the kind of implication of that being that this is a final thing. And, you know, well, obviously, the question of where do you go from there comes up Mm -hmm. immediately. So I don't know the where do you go from there question, I think, is what's pricking my mind right now.
1: Yeah, well, I, I, I often have these like thoughts. I, I, I remember the first time I read um, there's a speech by David Foster Wallace, a famous one called um, This Is Water, um, in which he basically says that we should give everyone the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. because we don't really know people's motivations and we don't really know um, what's behind their actions. Um, and when we give people the benefit of the doubt, it like heals our soul. Um, otherwise, we we spiral into cycles of cynicism um, and narcissism. Um, and that is very uh, synchronous with my own personality, um, is to give people the benefit of the doubt. But I realize that in myself, giving people the benefit of the doubt is a cop-out sometimes mm-hmm. in terms of yeah. like... Uh, uh, t- fighting for justice um and taking a stand at times when stands need to be taken um and i think i've been thinking a lot in our conversation during this conversation about like nick's idea of wisdom mm-hmm. um and he uses this image or well, he uses, um the two women who have a child one of the ch- two ch- children one of the children oh, yeah. dies they both claim it's their child and they come to solomon and solomon takes the sword and is about to chop through the child and then The real like mother comes forward and whatnot um and that that there is this path of death which is that like these two options and they both lead to to death they both lead to the child being killed except finally there's a new option which is this sword coming down and and life is brought forward and there's a way towards life and i think that like in the midst of these Irreconcilable ideas of, on the one hand, giving everyone the benefit of the doubt and the over complexity of everything, on the other hand, the over simplicity of everything and assigning blame and evil to a certain thing, Mm -hmm. then in the middle needs to be a new path that is somehow um, bringing life where those two paths bring death.
0: Yeah.
3: Similar to that, like attending to to kind of the process of judgment. one of the things that I find enlightening and it works with this because it's part of the, the, the RN course we are kind of uh, announcing here, um, is her work on Achman in Jerusalem, that like the series of reports on, on his trial in Jerusalem. And what's, what's key of, of her analysis there is, um, that sense of, um, We're not, even though this is such a a massive crime and is something the kind of humanity has never seen before, the way we saw it in, in in the war against the Jewish community, um, and other groups, um, there, she resists to, to take one of the two sides, either to, um, to tell, uh, kind of the world that she, to which She's reporting um to tell them that uh, this this person um, adolf Ackman, is is a monster and and he's immediately evil because he contributed to to what happened during the holocaust or she also resists to be on the other side and say, well he was just a cog in in just a a larger machine than uh he couldn't have done anything against to Against that process and to prevent what was happening there um so she's during the during the trial she wants to um kind of avoid as much as possible going to either side and present him just as a person that was there that made choices and those choices um were like were were choices that what we can kind of pass judgment on but um but that process of passing judgment is a lot more complicated than, than, than it would be in a, any other, um, kind of time in history because we have no resource, traditional resources that will allow us to, to adjudicate what is happening there. We kind of need to go beyond that and then, then see why, what makes what he did evil. Um, what aspect of his, um, of his participation in it makes him um, so evil that we don't want him to be part of this world. And her ultimate word on that is, in her own judgment of him, is that he's not fit to be in the world because he deemed so many people unfit to inhabit the world with him. So we can only... we that That ultimate kind of threshold is he needed to accept that at some point he denied the opportunity to exist in his world to so many other people and therefore he couldn't anymore exist in that world. i i don't know if that like that gets us a little further but it is the same is is the same attention to the process and to being in that in the middle of that tension between uh passing judgment and uh, and, and labeling someone as evil as soon as kind of you see a wrong being committed or um giving them the benefit of the doubt and 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 sitting with that um i don't know yet where mm-hmm. i will kind of go with it but um, it, it always forces me to kind of break everything down in like every action and every, um, every interaction I have with people down to a, to a, to a place in which I might be able to judge just a tiny bit aspect of what they are doing. But ultimately, I can never really pass judgment. So I, I am uh, also paralyzed by that. Well, you, both what
0: you just said and what you said, Mark, uh, about you know somehow finding this way between the two extremes of you know passing judgment on one side or the other uh and then your example bringing you bring up the example of you know the two women with the child and solomon uh and then but also bringing nick into the equation like there's two different things going on there where it's either like you're you know going the classic aristotelian way of being like well these Two extremes exist on either end, and I don't want to exist in either of those extremes being like pulled against, you know, my ability to will as a human being. So the task then is to find the middle way, uh, the reasonable middle way. But then like Nick's point is always that it's not just about like the middle, finding the middle way, like his whole idea with wisdom coming into play in those instances is that they create a new way. Yeah. And that, again, goes to your idea of, like, reconciliation, which, you know, reconciliation isn't necessarily just finding, like, the middle between these two warring groups or extremes or whatever. It's, you know, often just creating a new condition.
2: I feel like so often in these kinds of conversations – we import this very militaristic, combative sense of of good and evil. And a lot of that, I feel like, comes from this very Western Protestant tradition. Uh, we're in this war against evil, and it's our duty to fight, and, and it's very combative. Um, and there, obviously, there's some good things about that because there is – obviously, in many situations, there's a point when you do need to step up and and you are called to stand on behalf of someone else or to, to take a stand in some situation. But I think in a lot of the space before that, there is no need to see, uh, like, we're in this giant war against evil. And getting back to that, Maybe the communal sense of of looking at into the face of evil um and finding solidarity in that um, it's more it's less about solving the problem of evil and more about cultivating a way to respond to evil and that's maybe where the sense of virtue comes in because we can't solve evil it it doesn't matter who we put in jail who we prosecute, who goes to the stand, it, it doesn't matter. A lot of that is, is bureaucratic and is informed by things out of our control. And none of us are lawyers, so what can we really do anyway? But we do have the ability to, to do this sort of cultivation in ourselves and in our communities of a really healthy way to respond to what's happening in the world that we don't control. Um, and if we can, can show and image examples of that, um, in ways that are very healthy for both ourselves and for our communities, then maybe that's a place to start. Yeah. That raises another point
0: to me too, where it's like, it, you just by calling something evil, like immediately you're like, oh, well, this is, you know, this has cosmic stakes. This is like as Big as the world itself. And like, I think of, you know, in response, as a way of responding to that, like people like Mundleberry who are, you know, in the face of this, again, big scope of the question, like the task is, you know, you turn in and you focus on like the local, you focus on like the immediate, the communal, like, but we were, who was it? Mary Gioletti was at this, uh, conference that you, Hector, and I went to uh and her thing was you know focusing on like the neighborhood um and it's like existentially like committing yourself to acting in that frame is a way of kind of combating the bigness of evil
1: is it though like what yeah, what, yeah. ha- what <laughs> happens when like um so we have these uh borders that we put on things right like uh that surround our for example, our neighborhood. But what happens when there's it's like a Venn diagram yeah. where there's other borders that like and other jurisdictions that overlap. Um, and by focusing on the neighborhood, we ignore the, the things that are like uh, uh, impinging on our neighborhood um, and that are interacting with our neighborhood um, that might uh, be contributing to evil.
3: I understand that kind of ex- fo- focusing existentially in kind of the, the neighborhood or the community um, kind of precludes us from seeing and and addressing the evil that, that has structurally gone beyond the community or that affects the community from, from the outside. But um, I don't think this is a question about Judgment itself, or about um, just thinking about uh, about evil, or uh, uh, this is more. This is more about the way of bringing kind of goodness or reconciliation into the world that has been broken or damaged or or somehow made unhealthy because of evil so um that the, the focus should be the community that is the first space where we are able to see how um the kind of the human person can go from being um paralyzed by evil to being a capable self again uh, and that i think that's a, a little bit of like recourse Point when he's talking about reconciliation, um, it is it is something that happens in interpersonal relationships. So you need to you need to have an encounter in order for reconciliation to take place, and the encounter happens in the context of a local community. It's not that we stay there with that, but our first focus of of analysis and of um, action is that community. And uh, if I remember well, what uh, Mary Jo Lady was saying. Um, she was kind of opposing the idea of like she was talking about citizenship and she was opposing um responsibility to, um, duty? to yeah to duty so uh, yeah or to kind of burden like it was, it was something like that and she was she was speaking about um about um, um refugees arriving into Canada and saying that, Uh, She's showing them a very good example of us breaking through the systems that are creating oppression because they arrive with a high sense of responsibility with their own community. Like the first question of the refugee is never, what can I get from this country? But what can I offer? Mm. What can I offer to change the conditions so that I am able to inhabit this place without taking anything from the people who already inhabit it?
1: So that's been all for our show. Uh, I just wanted to thank Hector and Grace. Thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing your wonderful thoughts. And we wish you well in all of your endeavors upcoming in the United States and Canada and wherever else you go. So thank you.
3: (laughs) Thank you for having us.
0: Hopefully this is just wet your appetite for the rest of the semester then. Yeah, so we'll try and introduce some of the new students that we've got coming in this semester and maybe get some of their thoughts on evil resistance and judgment.
1: Which I know that some of them at least have thoughts on.
0: Yes, someone has already come in and spontaneously offered thoughts on evil resistance and judgment. And then the week after that, we're going to have, Lord willing, we'll have run on to give a bit of a more formal introduction to the themes of evil resistance and judgment. So he he may be a little more cogent than at least some of my questions were today. (laughs) So that brings us to the end of the show this week. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. And you can also follow us on Twitter as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, keep listening and subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.